Well, they tell us that presentation is everything. Not only in the way we present our food and depend on Pinterest to tell us how to do that right, but also in the way we present ourselves. It's important to us. That's why you can find so many tips online for how to present yourself. These are seven I've found, seven tips to feel empowered, to present yourself with confidence, be visually appealing, speak with conviction, listen with empathy, adapt the right body language, wear an upbeat mood, become your best friend, embrace integrity. So I wonder this, if, if presentation is everything, why did God present Jesus and his public ministry on earth the way he presented it? What does God want you and me to learn from the way he presented Jesus? And how might God want us to live? And how might he want us to work at building his kingdom because of the way he presented Jesus. See, I think we want to present ourselves confidently. I think we want to live confidently. I think we want to do what is right. I think that truly we want to make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. And so this morning as we look at God's presentation of Jesus, we'll see that when we submit our lives to God's purpose, we can live with confidence right now. When we submit ourselves to God's purpose, you and I can live with confidence right now. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, the third chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Please turn to Matthew 3, and when you've found your place there, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now, as always, that you would bless your reading, the reading of your word to our hearts. Lord, we acknowledge again we need your Spirit to help us understand your truth. We need your Spirit to give us uh, the desire and the power to live out that truth, your truth in this world. And so that's our prayer this morning, that you would accomplish those things in us and through us for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. This week and next week, I want us to look in this passage about how God presented Jesus. 
This morning, I want us to notice how purposeful it was. And in order to set the stage for us, I want to read a couple of verses from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Uh, that passage speaks of grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. That's what Matthew's story before us this morning. It's just that. It's about the, the appearing of Christ, the one who was from the beginning of time. And this is Matthew's story. John, the one we call John the Baptist, was at the height of his popularity. We talked about that last Sunday. People are coming from everywhere, flocking to him. Jerusalem, Judea, all the surrounding countryside, they're coming to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. Then, verse 13 tells us, then Jesus came. Just that suddenly. John is preaching, John is baptizing, and then Jesus came. Look, the last time that Matthew mentioned Jesus, his name, was when Jesus was just a very, very young child who had recently arrived in Nazareth by way of Judea. And then, nothing. Matthew doesn't tell us anything that happened during the next 27 or 28 years. Except for the story that Luke tells us in his gospel about the 12-year-old Jesus teaching in the temple. Scripture is silent about those years. What was going on? How was Jesus developing and progressing? It's true that people who lived in the hollow with Jesus, I told you I'm going to ride this one for a long time. I want to see how many weeks I can mention that Jesus was from the holler. They saw him grow up. But Jesus had not yet been publicly presented or noticed. And so what we have in the passage before us this, this morning is this unveiling of, of what's been developing for the last almost 30 years. But the reality is far greater than that, and the time is far greater than that. Our confession of faith tells us that it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of His church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So this is an incredible moment before us. Uh, a moment that has been planned since eternity. Can you grasp that? No, you can't. Neither can I but a moment that's been waiting since eternity to come to pass. So perhaps it's true. Presentation really is everything. And so when we look at this moment, at this presentation, we see that it is very purposeful, a very purposeful plan of God. God determined that Jesus would be presented in the wilderness by the Jordan River, where he would be baptized. That's it. And so this moment, not unlike 
other moments in Jesus' life, like his birth, cause us in our mind to make a list of the ways that God did not choose to do it. The birth of King Jesus did not take place in a palace. The introduction, the presentation of Jesus was not with the royal parade. So contrasting how God did not choose to do it helps us focus more clearly on what God did do. And it makes us ask, why God did you do it this way? Especially when the way God did it is so other than the way we would have done it. So look in verse 13. It says there, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, that's one of those verses we're thankful for because it's a very clear statement of purpose. Jesus came for this purpose, to be baptized. God determined that this is the way Jesus would be presented. So then look in verse 14. We read John's reaction to Jesus' request. John would have prevented him. Now, for some reason, the ESV, which we're using now, does not include the Greek conjunction, but, B-U-T. It's found in the Greek and most other translations. So the reading is, but John. And so the contrast, uh, the conjunction draws the contrast that we need to see. We, we have clearly stated the purpose of Jesus coming to be baptized, but John objected. So if John had his way, he would have prevented the purpose of God from taking place. Now I want us to think through a couple of the characteristics of John's objection. Because I believe they'll help us think through our objections when we say in our lives, but God, I know what you want, but God. right? And, and before we think about that, let me just say this. You know, when you're preaching, you're talking about other people and you're presenting their lives, you want to be careful about that. Here's what Jesus said about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So I don't want to present this great man wrongly. I certainly don't believe that I or you are any better than he is. But I think we can learn from what appears to us to be true about him. And the first thing we can see, the first characteristic of John's objection, was that it was reasonable. It made sense to him to object to Jesus. Look back in verse 6. We read there that the people were baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So how is it reasonable then? that John should baptize Jesus. As we know, Jesus was sinless. He had no sins to confess. Jesus had no former way of living from which he needed to repent. Jesus was never going down the wrong road. So he had no need to turn around and go the other direction. Jesus had no stain that needed to be washed away by the water of baptism. Jesus had no life that needed to be buried in baptism so that he could be raised to living a new life for God. 
He was already doing that. So for John, who above all people knew that these were the realities that were symbolically present in his baptism, it doesn't make sense that he would baptize Jesus. He doesn't have a category, me baptize Jesus. It's not up here in his brain. Therefore, John's reason dictates that no sinful human on earth could possibly baptize the sinless one. So we realize, I hope, that reason, our reason, cannot be what primarily dictates our lives. The purpose of God and fulfilling that purpose, that is what must dictate our lives. And maybe that purpose will seem reasonable to us, and maybe it will not seem reasonable to us. But that doesn't matter. When you and I are humble enough, and we got to be humble, to realize that our reason is not fully informed. Do you realize that? Your reason is not fully informed. There's too much truth that exists that we either do not know or that we do not rightly or fully understand. For instance... The cross of Jesus is not part of John's base of knowledge. The cross of Jesus is not even on John's radar. John, along with the other disciples, had neither imagined nor had they spent all these long years waiting for a Messiah who would die on a cross. John does not yet know that on the cross, Jesus will take upon himself the sins of the world. And this is the way that Jesus would become John's Savior. But John doesn't know that yet. And so his reason, which lacks full knowledge, cannot take him to the right place, or it cannot produce in him an act that is right in this moment. It can't. And so that's why you and I can never allow our reason to cause us to object to the purpose of God whose ways and whose thoughts are higher than ours. If reason dictated, the only one in history who has never sinned would never take on himself the sins of the world. And yet Jesus did What is unreasonable? He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How is that reasonable? It isn't to us, but it is to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How's that reasonable? It isn't to us, but it is to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. How is that reasonable? It isn't to us, but it is to God. Galatians 3 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How is that reasonable? Can you answer? No, it isn't reasonable to us, but it is to God. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of the world, we will all look on his baptism in a new light. We will make beautiful connections that our reason may have prevented us from seeing before this. And we will be thankful that this is the way that God chose to present Jesus to us. And so the presentation of Jesus in this way should cause us to check our reason. It should humble us before a God who knows what we might not ever know. Before a God who knows all things, we should seek Him. We should consult Him first before our reason. Check your reason. The second characteristic of John's objection is that it was self-centered. John's objection was based on how he felt and what his perceived needs were. Look at what he says in verse 14. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? See, for John, Jesus' request made about as much sense as if Billy Graham had called me 15 years ago. Craig, hey, I'm preaching a huge crusade this weekend. I need you to help me write my sermon. (laughs) Please imagine. No, Dr. Graham, why would you call someone like me? I'm preaching this Sunday, and I need you to help me on my sermon. Right? Isn't that the way it should go? I would feel good if you said no. You're not going to say that, are you? I didn't think so. See, John didn't feel worthy to do what Jesus asked. He's already said as much in verse 11. Look there. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So once again, John is absolutely right. Jesus is mightier than he is. And John isn't worthy to carry Or untie Jesus' sandals, even though that's a task so low that only the lowest servant was required to perform it. John is not worthy. But here's the good news. Who wants good news? Who wants good news? Jesus doesn't do what he does for us because we are worthy. Jesus does not do what he does for us, because we are worthy. Jesus doesn't go around Sherlock Holmes style with his hat and his pipe and his magnifying glass looking everywhere is someone who's worthy. Where can I find worth in this world? Because guess what? He would never, never find it because none of us are worthy, which is not the same thing as saying that we are worth less. We are not worth less. We are who are made in the image of God, have great value to God. Otherwise, why would He do everything that He has done for us? But we are not worthy. We do not deserve for Jesus to do what He has done for us. 
And so I mean this in the nicest possible way when I make this request of you. Will you get over yourself? You and I are not the center of everything. We're not. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally I like to talk about the Lord and His plan and His purpose for our lives and not our needs. See, this moment is not about John. It's about what Jesus is willing to do and what Jesus is asking John to do for the sake of others. For what his being baptized will mean to them and for them and for the growth of the kingdom of God. See, pride is not always about bragging. Pride isn't always about grabbing center stage and taking all the attention. Pride is simply this. Pride is being obsessed with yourself. That's what pride is. It's being obsessed with yourself. And so the self-effacing, dirt-kicking, oh shucks, speaking person can be just as proud as the self-centered braggart because every act that you do has you in the center of it. How it makes you feel. What it makes other people think or feel about you. You, you, you are always in the center of it. Sometimes not acting, not doing what you should do is because you're so prideful that that makes you fearful that you might fail or you might not live up to your own standards and so you don't do anything at all and that is nothing but pride. So as wonderful as John was, he still had a view that centered on himself. What Jesus asked him to do made him feel uncomfortable. It would make me feel uncomfortable. It would make you feel uncomfortable. Unless you and I are living by the gospel and filtering everything through it. It's grace, it's demands, it's love, it's power, it's forgiveness. It isn't a matter of pride for you and for me to live as sons and daughters of the living God. Unless, of course, you think you did something to deserve that. But the gospel tells us we didn't. We're children of God simply because He proclaimed us to be His children. He adopted us as His children when we, by faith, accepted the work He did for us. So, let's get over ourselves. Can we do that? Let's get over ourselves. We didn't do anything to be proud of. And so issues of pride and identity and what people think of us or what they, we think of ourselves, they've got to be discarded. Throw them out. Get rid of them. So that you and I might not oppose or attempt to prevent the purpose that God has for us. So that we won't be afraid to act because we're so worried about being the center of it. Please note this. John's purpose in objecting to the purpose of God was not evil. It wasn't evil. It came from a place that seemed reasonable. It came from a heart of humility. But the rightness or the wrongness of the objection is not the issue. The issue is this. Jesus had a purpose 
John sought to prevent it, right? Jesus had a purpose. John sought to prevent it. That's the issue. And that very often, maybe too often, is the issue in our lives. It becomes a pattern. The Lord's purpose for us followed by our objection. But Lord, we don't want to live like that. So as we move on and look at Jesus' response to John, maybe that pattern, Jesus' purpose, and our objection will be broken. Look in verse 15. John attempts to prevent Jesus from being baptized, and Jesus responds, Let it be so now, for it is fitting. Listen, i got to say a little bit of Greek stuff here. The let it be so for now, the word that's translated that way, it, it means more than, hey, let's do this thing right now in this moment. It has more of the idea, let it be so for now. Reformed scholar William Hendrickson translates the verse this way. But Jesus answered him, Yield to me this time, for it is proper for us in this way to comply fully with every righteous requirement. Yield to me this time. And so Jesus' answer seems to affirm John's thinking. Yes, John, you are reasonable in thinking that I don't need to be baptized. Yes, John, you are reasonable in thinking that I should baptize you, but for now, to fulfill the purpose of God, I need you to baptize me. In other words, this is the way to fulfill this purpose at this time. And so the word indicates that that something different than this might have been done in the past. Something different from this might be done in the future, but for now, let's do this thing. And so these words place on you and place on me a new obligation. You and I must have a for now dependence on the Lord. You and I have to have a for now dependence on the Lord. I need a new earlobe that just doesn't hold this thing in place. But it's not about me and what I need. That's better. See, when we think about this verse, we realize that something very right but very different could have been done. Something very right and something very different could be done in the future. And so when we're living today, when you and I are seeking to minister right now in this moment, we have to ask, Lord, what is effective right now? See, our court system has conditioned us to think about precedent, right? Because once a judgment is made, this thing is driving me nuts. Fred, just kidding. Oh, my word. I'm just going to start screaming. Hold on. I'll be like the old television anchors. Back to you, Dave. Can y'all please focus? Let's get back to this. Once a judgment is made in a case, it can forever after be used as a precedent, right? Your honor. 
In the case of Smith versus Jones, it was decided, right? Precedent comes out a little different in church lingo. We say this, but it has never been done that way before, right? We always do it this way. And so if we think that we've done something once, then it must always be. Precedent is set, right? Jesus' words concerning his own baptism require us to constantly be engaged with the gospel. This is how you and I break that cycle of of Jesus' purpose and our objection. If that purpose is a clear call to a certain way of living, if that purpose is a clear call to a certain way of not living, if that clear call is a, a clear call to action, the only way to keep ourselves from seeking to prevent that purpose is to engage it with the gospel every time. To ask, how can the gospel enable me to do what God is asking? Now, that's not the easiest way. The precedent way is the easiest way. It's the autopilot way. If I've never done it before, why do it now? If I've always done it this way, why stop now? The for now way is what challenges us. But it keeps us connected with the Lord. Always asking, Lord, what for now? Always going to the Word. Always calling on the Scripture to show us. And anything that keeps us that closely connected with the Lord is a good thing. Especially in our world. It's always changing. Everything we know changes. Everything God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word of God that is authoritatively inspired by God in a way that we call inerrant and infallible. The Word of the Lord will stand forever. Everything else changes. People change. Context change. Our neighborhood changes. Who knows? 10 or 15 years from now, this neighborhood that we're in, where this this church is right now, it could become drug-infested, dotted with brothels on every block, like it was in the 1960s. It could become that way again. In that case, how are you and I going to accomplish the purpose of God in this place for now? It's going to look different at that time, in a different context. And so for us, it must always be about for now. What place do precedents have in a church? A secondary one, for sure. Because the unchanging Jesus and the unchanging good news about Him may need to be presented this way for now and another way ten years from now. And so we've got to consider what God is calling us to do right now. Though we, you and I, like John, we don't understand everything about that calling. We might not understand everything that is required to accomplish that calling, but we must obey. That's what John did in this passage. He stepped aside. He conceded. 
Not my way, Lord, but yours. He yielded to Jesus. And so what is the Lord's purpose for you for now? Are you asking that question? Lord, what's your purpose for me for now? How often are you asking that question? What's the Lord's purpose for Redeemer for now? You know, I think it's something really specific. I think about the amazing opportunities that the Lord has given to our church in Uganda to build this resource center that you've been hearing so much about. I think of the the strategic positioning of the country of Uganda and how it's poised to impact not only all of Africa, but even the world. I think about the important and the powerful people with whom God has intimately connected us for now. Connections that make the heads of long-time Ugandan missionaries spin when they ask us, how did you know these people? How do you have these connections? Do you know what the Lord has done for you? In some ways, actually in many ways, it doesn't seem reasonable that we should build a resource center in Africa because Africa is, after all, Africa. It's a place that is certainly no stranger to political coups and to instability. A coup could happen there tomorrow, right? It could happen there next year. We could absolutely lose everything we have invested in this resource center. On the other hand, there may never be another coup in Uganda and we'll enjoy it for generations to come. We don't know. So we have to ask, Lord, what do you have for us to do for now? Not only in Africa, but here locally as well. What do you have for us to do for now, Lord, for outreach? Lord, what do you have us to do for now in our community groups? Maybe, maybe it's going to be something we've never done before and there's no precedent for it. What will we do then? What must we do not to prevent the purpose of God, but without fear and without pride? Do it right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us that we walk by faith and not by sight. So here it is. You know, the baptism of Jesus must be done for many reasons, many John does not understand. And so it is as if John, if Jesus is speaking here to John man to man and not divinity to man. John, I have before me what I must do. You have before you what you must do. The purposes are bigger than either of us in this moment. It's the right thing to do because it fulfills the purpose of God. Then Jesus came. That's how God presents him to us for the first time. Here he is. Here's Jesus. Here's love right before you. Vast as the ocean. Here's this one who would do this thing. Here is this one. I present him to you, seeking baptism, because one day he will be covered with the sins of the world. 
Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem reasonable. But it is both because it fulfills the purpose of God. And so in light of that, you and I must seek God's purpose for our lives for now and confidently live out that purpose for now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as always, we thank you for your word. It reflects your love for us that you would care about us enough to communicate with us. Tell us the truth. Lord, tell us these stories. Preserve them for us. Not fables, not myths. Things that happened in real time, Lord, according to your purpose. Pray that you would keep this story of Jesus and John and his baptism ever before us. As a reminder, Lord, that we should never attempt to prevent your will or your purpose for our lives. But instead, Lord, we should be humble before you. People who tend to think we know so much, dare I say it, think we know everything when we don't. Lord, keep the story in front of us so that we remember to not rely first and foremost on our reason, but instead on you and your word and your will for our lives. Knowing what seems unreasonable, Lord, may be the very thing that you're calling us to do. Thank you, Lord, for presenting Jesus to us in this way. Such a demonstration of his love for us and his humility and his desire to accomplish your goodwill for us. So, Lord, help us now to be for now people as we seek to discover and live out your purpose for us as individuals and as a church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.